Every community that you are a part of has a standard. There are community rules. There are codes of conduct. Colors, brands, flags, uniforms. Whether it's the college or the school you went to. You have a code of conduct. There's colors. There's a mascot. Right? Homeowners associations, if you live in such a neighborhood, have codes. You, you have to keep your grass mowed. You can only use certain... I think you can only use certain colors for your houses in Norway. I think I've heard somewhere. So maybe, maybe not. But there's certain colors you can and cannot use. Uh, the military. You have uniforms. You have codes and conduct and you never want to be accused of conduct unbecoming an officer and a gentleman as it as it were and the family you have a name to uphold some families have crests some have like in scotland like plaid quilts the colors or uh, insignias that represent the family name Uh, it's been more than one or two times i've sent my kids out and said remember you represent our family you represent my name in <laughs> this world. Maybe your parents did that to you at one time or another. But codes, colors, flags, uniforms, it's what distinguishes you as an employee of this company, as a, as a student of this school, as a member of this family, and so forth. Codes, colors, flags, uniforms. They are distinguishing marks or badges. In other words, all of these are forms of holiness codes. They're holiness codes. As we turn to Leviticus, Leviticus is all about holiness. If you look at page 7 of the worship folder, in the overview of Leviticus, uh, we will read there the melodic line. Holiness is the dominant theme of Leviticus, used 92 times. Holiness means set apart, to be set apart. Israel has been set apart by the Lord to be his people. Therefore, they shall worship and live as people set apart for God. They shall be distinct from the surrounding nations. Leviticus contains the laws that God gave Moses for the people of Israel. The basis for these rules and regulations is that God is God, emphasized by the recurring statement, I am the Lord. And we saw that as we read Leviticus 19 together a moment ago in the scripture reading. The basis for God's laws ultimately is not logic. Oftentimes God does not explain why to the Israelites why they should or should not do something. The point is, is that he's God, so he gets to determine the rules. And Israel has been redeemed and now they are set apart as holy to the Lord. Sometimes when we talk about holiness, it seems like this vague, confusing concept. But all holiness means is set apart. Something is set apart for a particular purpose. And as the people of God, we are set apart to serve the Lord as he has called us to serve him. That is what holiness means. So we have all sorts of codes of conduct in this world and in the schools and other social settings we find ourselves in. But how much more should we be concerned about the code that the great I am has set for us? What has God called us to do? So we're going to look at Leviticus. We're going to get an overview of Leviticus as we continue our walk through the Bible series. And then we're going to end by reflecting on what the law means for us today. So that's where we're going. Let me give you a brief uh, pathway to the the sermon this morning. First, we're going to look at holy worship. Secondly, we'll look at holy living. And then thirdly, we will look at the law and holiness in the New Testament and today. So pretty simple structure. Holy worship, holy living, and then the law and holiness in the New Testament and today. And quickly before we get in that, again on the, the page 7 of your worship folder, let's look briefly at the literary structure. 
Whereas last week, Exodus has a really clear literary structure. Uh, Leviticus is a little bit more debated. So scholars see a number of different structures to Leviticus and how it's formed. Uh, I would say, as I have written here, the book can be viewed as a 10-part structure, which locates the Day of Atonement at the center of the structure. And in the way uh, the Hebrews often communicated, the thing in the middle was the thing that was emphasized. You can think of it like an envelope structure. You have this envelope flap, and the point in the middle is is what the emphasis is all about. So that may or may not be the case. Some scholars see that. Uh, It is, in this case, less important the structure Uh, More important is the repeated word, holiness. So we look at what is the emphasis of a book in a number of ways. Sometimes we look by figuring out what the structure is. Other times it's a repeated word or or phrase or idea that comes over and over again. And holiness is used 92 times in 27 chapters. So that's a good clue that that is the emphasis. And then secondly, as we saw in the Melodic Line 2, the phrase, I am Yahweh, I am the Lord, is used 49 times in 27 chapters chapters as the basis for these laws. Another way we can view the book very generally is if we cut it in two, we could talk about laws concerning sacrifice from chapters 1 to 17, and then laws concerning community uh, for the rest of the book from chapters 18 to 26. So that's another way that you can look at Leviticus But this morning, we're going to look according to those three points that I told you already, holy worship, holy living, and law and holiness in the New Testament today. So let's begin with holy worship. Holy worship, and the big idea here with holy worship, is that God regulates how we worship Him. God regulates, or you could say God legislates how we worship. Worship Him. Holy worship, God regulates how we worship Him. And I encourage you to keep your worship folder open to page 7 because we'll kind of walk through the outline together. So I'll be referring to that a lot uh, during the, the message. Leviticus opens up with uh, various laws and regulations for how he is to be worshipped in the tabernacle that he just gave instructions for at the end of Exodus. And Moses continues in the tent of meeting, receiving revelation from the God. And that's how Leviticus begins. In chapter 1, 1, the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, and now God is going to lay forth how Israel can worship the Lord. How are they to worship God? And Leviticus in chapters 1 to 7 begins with the five major offerings that the priests and the Israelites could offer. Laws for burnt offerings, laws for grain offerings, law for peace offerings, laws for sin offerings, and laws for guilt offerings. And then after those laws, chapters 6 to 7 covers how those offerings would be handled by the priests. How are they to be given? What parts could the priests eat as they're due? Uh, because part of the offerings were to keep the priesthood going um, and living. So really chapters 1 to 7 have everything to do with God's prescribed way to sacrifice to him. God's prescribed way. After that comes the institution of the priesthood in chapters 8 to 10. And in this section we have one of only two narrative sections, story sections, in the whole book. And we read of the story of Moses consecrating Aaron as the great high priest who would initiate the priesthood, the ones who were authorized by God to make the sacrifices and lead Israel in the worship of Yahweh. So Aaron and his sons are consecrated. And then Aaron makes the first offering and the Lord accepts it. The Lord accepts it. And holy fire comes down and consumes the offering. And the Lord is pleased. But then we have a warning. A warning narrative. Continuing this first narrative, Aaron's sons 
Nadab and Abihu say, wow, that's pretty cool. My dad just made a sacrifice and fire came down from heaven. And we're not told exactly what's going through their minds, but one has to think pride was lurking there. And Nadab and Abihu offered unauthorized fire to God, an unauthorized sacrifice. In that same devouring fire that came down to bless Aaron's sacrifice, destroyed Nadab and Abihu. God killed them for offering an unauthorized sacrifice, a sacrifice that God did not legislate, did not allow. And in chapter 10, verse 3, it says, Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord said, Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace concerning his sons. And then down in verse 10 of chapter 10, the Lord says, You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, and between the unclean and the unclean, and you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. And the priests here are, it is reaffirmed to them that their duty is to distinguish between the holy and the common according to God's way of determining holy and common and between unclean and clean, and that the duty of the priests is to teach the people all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. And here we gain a really important insight in worship, is that we do not have the right to worship God however we want. God regulates his worship. And at the very institution of his worship, we see both a sign of great blessing and of great warning between Aaron's sacrifice and Nadab and Abihu's sacrifice. And we'll come back to this idea in the New Testament in a little bit. The fourth section of Leviticus deals with cleanliness and uncleanliness and all sorts of stuff that I think sometimes for us it sounds a little strange and weird what animals you could eat, what animals you could not eat, why could you eat one thing, why could you not eat a pig in the Old Testament, you know, why could you eat uh, a locust, you know, a grasshopper. Um, but again, the basis is God determines the rules. And at this time, this is what God determined for his people. And laws about leprosy and cleansing leprosy and laws for cleansing houses and bodily discharges. And all this had to do, you could not come before the Lord and worship if you were unclean. And God was teaching the people of Israel that he required perfection in worship. The fifth section, really a high point in Leviticus, deals with the Day of Atonement. Once a year, there would be a day when the sins and the transgressions and iniquities of the people would be placed on a goat. Uh, there'd actually be two goats. One they would sacrifice and one they would release as a sign of God releasing and uh, the sins of the people, the, the, the iniquity and the transgressions of God's people being left and being taken away from the people. This was the great high and holy day, the day of atonement. And then in chapter 17, we deal with blood, the place of sacrifice. The Israelites were not allowed to just sacrifice to the Lord anywhere on any high holy hill like the nations, but only at the tabernacle. There was only one place where God would accept the blood. And then there's laws about eating blood and how we treat blood in chapter 17. And we learn something very significant there about blood in worship in chapter 17, verses 10 to 11. If any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person 
who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So the life is in the blood, and it is by the life of the blood that atonement will be made. When we think about these, uh, these laws or this, the, the worship as God regulates it today, I do want to touch a little bit on the New Testament now, and then we'll get into it more at the end, as I've said. But a few things need to be understood. One, this holy perfection that God requires in worship turned out to be completely unattainable by God's people. They could not perfectly keep it. And what we're going to see throughout the Old Testament as we study it together is the constant failure of God's people and of God's leaders and of God's priests, which leaves us wanting more. As we read these books, it leaves us wanting more. And in the case of the sacrifices, we must look forward to Jesus, who becomes the perfect sacrifice for sin. And who becomes the perfect and final great high priest of his people. And we read of that in Hebrews chapters 8 to 10. How the law and the sacrifices was just a shadow of the substance that belongs to Christ. Everything we read in the Old Testament leaves us wanting more. Because it's pointing us to Jesus. To God himself. And because only God is holy, only he can ultimately offer the perfect, once-for-all, holy sacrifice for sins. A second thing I want to make here in connection to the New Testament, in respect that God relates how we worship, that still is the case today. God defines how we are to worship him. You know, it's a funny thing that we take for granted. In today's spiritual climate, I think everyone just thinks, oh, I can go to God however I want. It's my own spiritual journey. You'll hear people use phrases like that. I, well, I worship God this way. I worship God that way. You worship God the way you want to. I'll worship God the way I want to. But that kind of thinking is abomination to the Lord. Abomination to the Lord. During the Reformation, it was discovered as the as Erasmus's Greek and Hebrew, uh, well, Erasmus's Greek New Testament, and then the Hebrew manuscripts were being discovered as well, rediscovered, I should say. They're reading their translation, which was the Latin Vulgate, that had many imperfections in it, led to many of the Roman Catholic errors in, in doctrine. They're reading the original manuscripts and they're going, wait a minute. There's a whole bunch of stuff that's off here. And as they were discovering the word of God again, they discovered afresh what it was that God required in worship. And through the course of time, this became known as the ordinary means of grace. The ordinary means of grace. That's a phrase you'll hear as use sometimes. What is it that God requires us to do in worship? And when we read the New Testament, God is very clear about what we should be doing. So when we talk about the ordinary means of grace, we can talk about five things, five basic things. We read the word of God. We pray the word of God. We preach the word of God. We sing the word of God. And we see the word of God. And that's the visible, to use Augustine's language, the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper are the visible words of God. They're visible ways we see the gospel. They are signs of the gospel. We read... Pray, sing, preach, see the word, the ordinary means of grace. 
Words, another way you could talk about it is word, sacraments, and prayer. Word, sacraments, and prayers. This is what we should focus on. And unfortunately, it's something that is sadly amiss today in, in so many churches. Uh, so many churches get caught up in what uh, I heard one person call the dog and pony show. You know, fog, smoke machines, rock bands, dance performances, art, self-help talks. And that's what goes for worship in so many places today, sadly. And I was talking to actually um, one of my neighbors this week at a a school gathering for uh, Mariah. And uh, they're Christians. Uh, I trust that they are Christians. But I was asking them a little bit about their uh, their background, where they, they worship, and what their church is like, and, and all of that. And I'm always kind of learning more about Norwegian Christian culture and Beta Hooses and the different traditions. And um, we got to one point, I just said, well, what, is, what do they preach at your, your church? And, and first he said, well, there aren't really preachers. There's just different people that will share. So there aren't usually recognized or ordained leaders. But secondly, uh, even where there are, they said, well, we feel that it's best to preach uh, or talk about whatever the felt needs of the community is at that moment. So whether it's parenting or work or whatever the guy standing, so the guy standing up just decides, well, I think we'll talk about this today. So I said, so you don't have anyone preaching the word of God to you. And then the whistle blew and something happened, and so we got cut off from the conversation. Um, but I've heard that from others here as well. And it's not just a Norwegian thing. It's an American thing. I can't speak for, for some of the, like Indonesia or some of the other countries you come from, but uh, I see heads nodding. But it's become basically a self-help pep talk. There are very few, even pulpits, where the word of God is being heralded as God has dictated it to be heralded. And both in the New and Old Testament, you see over and again, God telling his leaders, you tell my people my word. Give my people my word. And God regulates how we are to worship him. And I trust and hope that you will hold me to that and the elders here to that at our church, that we focus on the ordinary means of grace. So holy worship, God regulates how we worship him. Let's move to the second part of the message. Holy living, God regulates how we live before him. God regulates how we live before him. And this dominates particularly the second half of Leviticus. As we move past the the sacrificial system, the rest of the book really focuses on holiness, holy living, holy living in yourself with the community. Uh, chapters 18 to 22 are all about the holiness code. What does that look like? And chapter 18 begins with an introduction to this section, which I'll read for you in verses 1 to 5. 18, 1 to 5. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt, where you lived. And you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. And obviously, we don't have time to go in great detail into the holiness code, but I want to point out a few things in this section. If you turn on page 7 and just look at the outline, I want you to notice a few things. Number one, the number one and two sins in this holiness code is sexual immorality and child sacrifice. The the dominant the dominant 
space in this section in terms of sins is given to unlawful sexual relations and to child sacrifice. And that is so striking to me today because the most dominant flags of the social progressive culture are the very two sins that are on the top of the list for God. Sexual immorality and abortion. In uh, Israel's case, abortion took the form of sacrificing to the god Molech. And the god Molech had these arms out like this in the statue. And there was a fire burning in his belly. And the Canaanites and uh, the surrounding nations and Israel too, at times would offer their babies to Moloch in, with the promise of a fruitful land. And they would lay the baby on the arms of Moloch, and that baby would tumble down into the burning belly of Moloch. And that sounds barbaric, doesn't it? But how barbaric is abortion today when a little baby is dismembered by a physician in a clean and sterile environment that looks white and clean and pure. And often that baby is aborted for prosperity so that the person will not be encumbered by taking care of someone. There's no difference. And the whole LGBTQ movement, and before that, just, just loose sexual relations of the, of the uh, 60s hippie culture, There's no coincidence because the God, as it were, lowercase g behind Moloch is Satan. Satan's not a God. He's a fallen angel. But the same enemy that was behind all the pagan worship in whatever form it took is the same enemy that's behind all of the sins of the social revolution today. And the punishments we see in chapter 20 were severe. They were capital punishments for child sacrifice and sexual immorality. Two others as well, divination, going to mediums or necromancers, spiritists, as well as those who violated the fifth commandment, who rebelled, who cursed their mother and father, were to be put to death. When we think about these holiness codes, it seems severe. But when we think about what's actually the evil that underlies these sins and God's call for perfection and what we want to have in the new creation, a sinless life, we begin to learn what God requires and we begin to understand why these things were treated as they were. Beyond the holiness in terms of community living or personal living, we're also given holy times. And in chapters 23 to 25, the Lord lays out the holy feasts that the whole community uh, was to celebrate together. This is when a lot of those sacrifices that we learned about in the first half of Leviticus would be done. But there was three major feast seasons in uh, in the Israelite worship, and it's laid out for us in chapters 23. And this was part of Israel's obligation as a community before God. In chapters 20, uh, 23 and 24, we see several things. First, the Sabbath was their one and seven day worship of God. The Sabbath is reaffirmed, even as we saw the Sabbath affirmed last week in Exodus the chief worship day is the seventh day, the day of rest and of worship before God. And that goes all the way back to creation and the ordering of creation there in Genesis 1. Six days of work and a seventh day of rest. And then uh, the Lord gives Moses three major feasts or feast months, I think we could call it because there's several feasts sometimes in these months. So then the, the feast of the first month included the Passover 
and the Feast of First Fruits. So the Passover, the reminder of deliverance, started the calendar year for the Israelites. Every January 1, well, it's not January 1 for them. That was not their calendar, but to connect it to us today. The start of their year is in the spring, actually. That's when the first month was for the Jews. But the start of their calendar year was the Passover, being reminded that they were delivered out of the hand of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, and they were redeemed by the Lord. And in that same month, there was a feast of the first fruits where they would celebrate that as well. In the third month, all the people from Israel would gather together to celebrate the Pentecost, which was the harvest festival for giving thanks for the crop that the Lord had provided. In the New Testament era, this was called Pentecost. This is when the Spirit was ultimately poured out on the people of God on the day of Pentecost. And then finally in the seventh month, there is three feasts. The Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Booths or Tents. The Feast of Booths sometimes is called the Feast of Tabernacles. So it has a few different names. But everyone would get out their tents and would sleep in their tents for seven days to remind themselves that God provided for his people in the wilderness. And the tent was a reminder of their earthly pilgrimage on earth. Maybe that's something we should do again today. (laughs) I do like to go camping. But that would be the Feast of Booths. And everyone was required, and everyone worshipped. And the men in later days would come from all over the ancient Near Eastern world to return for these feasts. As we turn to the New Testament and think about these holy times today, we could wonder, well, is all of this to be done away with now? But I don't think so. We see in 1 Peter 1, as we read in our New Testament reading, the same call to holiness Peter gives to the church that God gave to the Israelites reading in 1 Peter 1, 13 to 16. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be wrought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So Peter cites, he quotes Leviticus, as the same call to holiness. But notice as Peter goes on in verse 17, And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. And he's going to go on. He uses the same ransom language that the Lord used in the Old Testament. The Lord redeemed, the Lord ransomed the Israelites from Egypt. But in the New Testament, Peter shows us the greater truth. We're not ultimately ransomed from a people or a nation, but from sin. And the kingdom of darkness. And so the call to be holy is the call to flee from spiritual evil that you've been ransomed from and to take on and to make your conduct fitting of the Lord who called you. You should be holy as your heavenly Father is holy. And then Peter goes on in his letter to talk about community living. So much of holiness is how we live with one another. And they were ransomed by the blood of Christ to commit themselves to brotherly love, love of neighbor, the love of neighbor. And so Peter takes these, uh, this holiness code and applies it now to how he lives the church of Jesus Christ. And chief in that is the love for God 
and love for neighbor, for one another. We look around, we're called to love each other, to care for each other. That is holy living. God regulates how we live before him. We don't worship now on the Sabbath day, the seventh day. We now worship on the first day of the week. That's the day that the Apostle John calls the Lord's Day. In Revelation 1, he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. So now the Christian Sabbath is not the Old Testament Sabbath. Those things are done away with. But we still have a one day and seven requirement that goes back to creation, all the way back to creation. But now we rest on the first day because that's the day that the Lord was raised from the dead. And in some Christian traditions, they talk about the eighth day, the, the eternal day. The eighth day, that Jesus inaugurated the eighth day, the eternal rest that we will experience in full when he returns. Okay, so we've looked at holy worship and we've looked at holy living. Now I want to conclude the third point, law and holiness in the New Testament and today. Law and holiness in the New Testament and today. So we've talked, we've made a few touch points to the New Testament in terms of how Christ fulfills these things and how, uh, and, and how Peter applies them to the New Testament church. But I want to kind of just take this, uh, this moment to clarify some things I think are often confusing for Christians, especially as we read the Old Testament law. Exactly what are we to do with this? Like, why couldn't you round the corners of your beard? Why couldn't you cut yourself? Now, some of those things, for example, had to do with uh, divination practices and pagan cultic practices. They cut themselves to implore the gods to help them, or they they do so. Some of the things we read and go, well, that's weird. It had to do with pagan worship. But at the end of the day, whether we we understand it or not, it's because God is God. But the question is, are these laws done away with? Or is there still something we should do with them? Last week, I told you, and someone asked me afterwards, um, that the ceremonial laws, that is the laws of sacrifice, and the civil laws are done away with. Those are abrogated, to use a, a theological term. But the question is, if they're done away with, does that mean they have no use today? And you're like, I thought Paul told Timothy that all scripture is useful for teaching and training in righteousness. What is the use of the law today? There still is a use of the law today, even though in its Old Testament form, it is abrogated in the sense of the, the civil national laws and of the, uh, the ceremonial laws. So I want to just say, give you four things on this, this sub, four subpoints here under law and holiness in the New Testament. First, the summary the summary of the law still applies. When the Pharisees asked Jesus what the most important law was, he says in Matthew 22, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he said the second, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 6.5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he cites Leviticus 19. He says, and you should love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus carries forward that principle that is encompassed by the whole giving of the law. All the laws can be summed up in love for God and love for neighbor. That continues very clearly into the New Testament. When we read so many of the laws, it has to do with either love for God or love for your neighbor. How are we to act before God or how are we to act before others? That general principle still applies today. It is a timeless principle. Secondly, the, the moral code, which is we say is summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments, is eternal, is timeless. As I said last week, that the Ten Commandments were summarized there on Mount Sinai for the people of Israel. But that's not the first time God required those moral codes to be enforced. That goes all the way back to the garden 
And in Romans 2, Paul says that the law is written on our hearts. And he's talking about the moral law. We know those things. We know those things. Even you, especially those of you that converted to Christ as adults, you know by your conscience that things were wrong even when you did them. That moral law is on every man, woman, and child's heart. And those things continue today. Uh, in fact, just to give you an example, besides First Peter 1 that I cited to you already, Paul uses the fifth commandment in the New Testament talking to the kids. When he writes in Ephesians 1, he's writing to the children too of the churches. Children are important in the community. And he uses the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So these commandments still apply in the New Testament. The apostles use them. And so we are not to do away with them now. But the real, so that's the second point. So I gave you a summary with Matthew 22, um, the, mor- the moral code, which was the second point. A third sub point here is this concept of general equity. What do we do with all those laws about like, if you dig a pit, you need to cover it, right? If, uh, you know, what do we do with, with laws about, you know, don't muzzle the ox, you know, not many of us are farmers. I don't think anyone in here is a farmer. But we need farmers. It's a good occupation. I come from many farmers myself. Maybe you do as well. What do we do with these laws that seem irrelevant as we read Leviticus today? How are we to understand them? The Westminster Confession of Faith uses a term called general equity, general equity. And in uh, chapter 19, the fourth paragraph of of our Westminster Confession of Faith, it's talking about the law, and it says, To them also, as a body politic, he gave sundry judicial laws, which expired together with the state of that people, not obliging any other now, farther than the general equity thereof may require. So the Westminster theologians are saying that, yes, the civil ceremonial laws, they talked about ceremonial laws earlier in chapter 19 of the Confession. But in paragraph 4, they talk about the judicial laws. They say those are done away with. They've expired with the state of that people. And they don't oblige us to do anything now farther than the general equity thereof may require. And so the question is, what does general equity mean? mean. What general equity means is that there is a spiritual principle in all the laws that we still should be uh, seeking to apply as we live and as we live as a community. And I'll give you a few New Testament examples of this idea of general equity. For example, in 1 Corinthians 5, the church in Corinth has been kind of harboring and supporting a man who committed a pretty gross sexual violation or an ongoing violation in, in the community there, which was totally inappropriate. And so you go, well, what basis um, should the church judge this man and what should they do with him? And so Paul treats that in 1 Corinthians 5. But at the end of that section, in, in verses 12 to 13, Paul tells the church at Corinth, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not those, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. And then Paul says, Purge the evil person from among you. And there Paul cites Deuteronomy 13. Uh, Deuteronomy 13, 5 specifically, I believe it is. And actually this phrase, Purge the evil person from among you is used seven times in Deuteronomy when the law is restated. In this context of church discipline, Paul is applying the general equity of the Mosaic law to the principle of church discipline. He's applying the point of purge the immoral person from among you in Deuteronomy was to keep 
your people pure and clean and bearing a good witness to the outside world. And Paul sees that same principle with church discipline and he applies it in 1 Corinthians 5. So he takes an Old Testament law and applies the general principle of it to New Testament living. Okay, So that's an example in the New Testament of general equity of the law. Another example of general equity of the law, and I mentioned this already, in Deuteronomy 25, 4, it says, don't muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. Well, what, what does that look like today? Well, Paul uses that, uh, that law as a basis for churches supporting their elders, supporting their leaders. Don't, tre- don't muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain. So Paul use, he uses the spiritual principle of, of treading the ox. I don't think I would have arrived at that one myself, but, but Paul did. And he applies it to today. In 1 Timothy 5, he says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox when it treads out the grain. And the laborer deserves his wages. So he applies the general equity principle of the Old Testament for a New Testament context. So as we read Leviticus, as you read it on your own, or you read the other laws of God in Exodus or Numbers, Deuteronomy, we can look at the general equity principle as we apply this to today. A fourth sub-point I just want to say in this in terms of clarity and uh, is something that I just took here from Sproul, R.C. Sproul, a short uh, reading that I want to read for you uh, in conclusion here. Uh, Sproul talks about three uses of the law that are, it's kind of standard in Reformed theology. And I just want to read this excerpt to you from R.C. Sproul. The Reformation was founded on grace and not upon law. Yet the law of God was not repudiated by the reformers. John Calvin, for example, wrote what has become known as the threefold use of the law in order to show the importance of the law for the Christian life. The first purpose of the law is to be a mirror. A mirror. On the one hand, the law of God reflects and mirrors the perfect righteousness of God. The law tells us how much uh, tells us much about who God is. Perhaps more important, the law illumines human sinfulness. Augustine wrote, "The law orders that we, after attempting to do what is ordered, and so feeling our weakness under the law, may learn to implore the help of grace." The law highlights our weakness so that we might seek the strength found in Christ. Here the law acts as a severe schoolmaster who drives us to Christ. So the law is mirror. A second purpose for the law is the restraint of evil. The law in and of itself cannot change human hearts. It can, however, serve to protect the righteous from the unjust. Calvin says this purpose is by means of its fearful denunciations and the consequent dread of punishment to curb those who, unless forced, have no regard for rectitude and justice. The law allows for a limited measure of justice on this earth until the last judgment is realized. Okay, so, so far we've seen the law as a mirror, and then we also saw the law as a restraint for evil. Now, the third purpose of the law is to reveal what is pleasing to God. As born-again children of God, The law enlightens us as to what is pleasing to our Father, whom we seek to serve. The Christian delights in the law as God himself delights in it. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. John 14, 15. This is the highest function of the law, to serve as an instrument for the people of God to give him honor and glory. And then Sproul concludes, by studying and meditating on the law of God, we attend the school of righteousness. We learn what pleases God and what offends him. The moral law that God reveals in scripture is always binding upon us. 
Our redemption is from the curse of God's law, not from our duty to obey it. We are justified not because of our obedience to the law, but in order that we may become obedient to God's law. To love Christ is to keep his commandments. To love God is to obey his law. So what Sproul is saying, and just basically he's summarizing uh, the reformer's view on this, is that the law has three functions. It serves as a mirror to show us God's holiness, as also to show us our unholiness and to drive us to grace. So that's the law's mirror. The law is a restraint for evil to show the punishment deserving of those who commit great evil. And then the law as to show us what is pleasing to God, how we should live before him. And we are not saved by the law. The law can only condemn us, and the law has no power to save. Only the gospel has power to save. But when we become new creations in Christ, we now strive to fulfill the law, not as a means of earning God's favor, but of means of showing gratitude, of thankfulness to him who saved us, who sent his own son to die for us. The Heidelberg Catechism, that great Reformation catechism, divides the catechism into three parts, into guilt, grace, and gratitude. Guilt, grace, and gratitude. And holy living is not something we do to earn God's favor, but it is the result of grace and being saved from the law. So every community has standards, has colors, codes, flags, uniforms. But in the church, we have a spiritual code that is unchanging. And even the general equity of the laws that have now ceased in their formal sense still apply today in their spiritual sense. The word of Leviticus is, You shall be holy. Holy in worship, holy in life. And we do it today as New Testament Christians not to earn God's favor, but out of thankfulness for him who saved us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Let's pray.